Hello and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Today's topic is engaging with the challenge of different modes of writing, and I'm delighted to be joined for this discussion by Professor Joy Hendry. Professor Hendry is a highly respected cultural anthropologist. She completed a Bachelor of Science degree from King's College London in 1966, and a Bachelor of Letters degree at Lady Margaret Hall at the University of Oxford in 1974. She was awarded a Doctor of Philosophy degree from the same institution in 1979. She conducted much of her early research in Japan, initially studying family and marriage. She later moved to studying rearing practices for children before preschool, and then to subjects such as examining self-presentation and politeness in language. She later began a project studying diplomacy, with the involvement of British and Japanese diplomats and the British Foreign Office. Joy has also worked in many other countries, including Nepal, Thailand, Indonesia and Tanzania, and has also served as a principal lecturer at Oxford's Brookes University. She has written extensively not only for academic publication, but has also produced non-fiction for general audiences, as well as novel-length works of fiction, and it's a great pleasure to welcome her today. It's a great pleasure to be here. So Joy, thank you for joining us today. Uh, You've been the author of a great many academic papers and books over the years, but more recently you've also written for mainstream audiences. What would you say are the major challenges involved in these different modes of writing, and how do they differ? It's um, a difficult question to answer because I don't think I ever quite achieved the academic form of writing that some of my colleagues practice. And um, because I started out, before I ever became an academic, I was a journalist. And um, so I was used to writing for general readers and then became an anthropologist and started writing academic books well articles obviously first of all and um, would get criticized for making things too easy to understand which is in my view uh, crazy if you want people to understand what you're writing whether they're academics or not then you should write clearly so I do have um a sense of always wanting to write in such a way that anybody could understand what I've written. And even the most academic of the books I've written, people have actually thanked me for making them understandable. So, you know, I tried... Anyway, that's 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 my view on the subject. And But the tr- problem is, I don't think I've achieved either getting back to writing in a more general way since I've become an since I became an academic because uh, I have written these novels but I haven't yet found anyone who wants to um, bring them to publication and agents do say you know oh yeah you academics you might write lots of stuff but it's different just as you've su- suggested in in your question so I'm working on it Now, there is a huge market out there for what might be termed popular social science writing, as so many of these subjects are of perennial interest to the public. How do you feel the social scientist is best able to communicate complex ideas and theories to people who perhaps don't have an academic background in this area of study, and yet still convey the most important nuances of a given topic? Yes, well, that is a challenge, but it's something that I've been working on all my life, so I do think that... um, anyone could do it if they tried hard enough and it's basically not couching all the things that you write in jargon that other people who are not academics can't understand Um, and uh, I think quite often academics do 
pepper what they're writing with um, the latest words that have been bandied around by each other so that they seem to be writing as if only for each other. And if you can um, cut through that and write in a style that is clear and um, explains what you want to say, I don't think there's any problem with writing for anybody to understand because all words that are used by the academics and that come into fashion and go out of fashion and become buzzwords they, they have a meaning that can be explained and I even words that are quite difficult to explain it is possible to do it and I and I think that's what they need to do there's one anthropologist who works for the Financial Times called Gillian Tett and she's done a really jo good job of doing this because she writes the most complex things in a way that people and her books have sold really well. Do you feel there are any specific challenges for the anthropologist in comparison to other particular disciplines such as, say, sociology? Uh, well, actually, one of our big problems in writing um, is that we're usually talking about people who have a different language. So, first of all, you've got to be translating what you've gathered in, in that other language into English, and then you've also need to make sure that the people who are reading what you've written um, could include the people that you worked with if they know English <laughs> and um, so I think that is a different problem because sociologists tend to work with their own language and their own culture or at least part of their own culture you know it might be different people from the ones they grew up with but they're usually using the language even if it isn't necessarily shared. And that's one of the things that anthropologists look at as well. So say you took um, a, a minority group of people in, let's say, Glasgow, who have um, their own way of talking that other people from outside don't understand, uh, then an anthropologist would make the effort to understand that language and to not necessarily to use it because it might bring them, you know... <laughs> they might be made fun of but uh, that's one of the things that anthropologists specialise in which is learning another language and then translating it back so that's our challenge in in writing to bring what we write into our own language and to the people who we want to read it You've been involved with writing in a number of different forms for a very long time what would you say was the most difficult research project or piece of writing that you've produced throughout your career? <clears throat> yes, well, I um, I wrote, I did one study which you mentioned in the introduction of politeness, and that was a really difficult subject to discuss because um, a lot of what I was doing in Japan, and the same thing exists in the English language, is uh, trying to understand things that weren't said, non-verbal communication, things that people... Um, mean without saying the words so you know simple example would be that's a very beautiful hat Mrs Jones you know when you actually don't like the hat and Mrs Jones knows perfectly well that you don't like it that sort of thing that um, I was looking at in Japanese and the Japanese professor who was who had invited me to visit his department while I was doing that research was convinced that nobody but Japanese people could understand Japanese he thought that it was impenetrable for foreigners and that he found foreigners speaking Japanese difficult to understand he said so um, that was difficult because it meant that, that I was running up against the prejudice about whether or not people would understand in, at the Japanese end 
um, and then translating it back um, to explain although we can do the same things in English it's, it's done in a different way so that's probably the most difficult because you're talking about nonverbal language and things that ways that people say things rather than what they say yes because I mean, Japanese seems to be um, so well known for having such a complex grammatical structure I mean is that something that's traditionally difficult for people to overcome or you know is it something that just has to be yes actually the, that's a, that's a myth the Japanese grammatical structure is not that difficult it's fairly straightforward what's difficult is um, it's first of all it's backwards so if you take English and you want to uh, write a sentence in Japanese you generally need to start at the at the other end and or <clears throat> you'd actually the Japanese word order is quite complex but easy to get to grips with because every word has a particle at the end of it which tells you what the word's doing so instead of having noun verb you know subject verb object you'd have a subject indicated by the particle at the end of the word and it could be anywhere in the sentence so that's confusing for people but actually the grammatical form is not that difficult to learn and what is difficult is the way you say things so if you're too polite it sounds rude and <clears throat> men and women speak differently people speak differently depending on who they're speaking to and those all those things which we do in English actually as well um, are hard for people to learn and to get right in a different society and I, that's one of the reasons why I think anthropologists have done a really good job in Japan because that's what they're looking at over the past few years, you've moved into the fast-moving area of fiction writing. Did you find the research involved and the writing process more generally presented a different challenge from that of writing a non-fiction text, or were there still areas of overlap between these two modes of writing? Well, there's um, definitely there are definitely areas of overlap because I'm when I whatever I'm writing, I want to be presenting what I'm saying. I want to do it right, you know. I want I don't want to. Um, get things wrong or tell the story in a way that doesn't represent what happened or you know the period of time because the, no the novels I've written were set in the 1960s I mean actually the 70s 80s uh, but I wanted to make sure what I was writing represented that period um, and I'm also when I'm writing academic books and anthropology wanting to make sure I'm getting things right so there's that overlap but the research was much more fun because um, I could um, I could read what I wanted to read and not feel that people would be judging me for what I hadn't read. So when you're writing an academic text, you need to make sure you've read everything that anyone's written on the subject and um, you need to um, be sure that you're getting <coughs> the arguments right and some of the people who are writing the arguments have written in such convoluted style that it's hard to understand. And so uh, with the fiction writing I was generally looking for and I wrote to a lot of people who were around at the time I was writing about and it was wonderful to get their replies and to, you know to get the first person accounts which is what anthropologists do anyway because we go and talk to people while we're doing research so I suppose that's another area of overlap that we're getting first person accounts my anthropology is a bit historical now anyway because I did it so long ago <laughs> So that's, yeah, that, and the research, and I just found it much more fun because I didn't have to have a pile of books around me and feel I've got to make reference to all these things and get all the references 
in the bibliography. I could just write and invent the world I wanted to invent. So that was that was good. It does strike me that if you're writing about cultures beyond, you know, the 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 UK that we live in, um, anthropology seems to me one of the most advantageous subjects you could have a background in because um, I think perhaps in terms of characterisation, you will have a far far better idea of how these cultures work, the specifics of them, than say someone like myself who would be learning from scratch. Yes, that's that is the advantage of that subject, and it's one of the reasons why. I'm really keen to sell the subject to schools in Scotland, which is one of the things I've been doing. And we've got, we've got making progress, actually, in that respect, because the, the newly designed Scottish Qualifications Authority is going to have anthropology as a named subject, which it hasn't had up to now. It's only been an option. So I think you're right. I think it is a good subject, and it'll help the people who leave school to work in all sorts of different areas where they're meeting people from different backgrounds. It seems today there is considerable hybridisation emerging between different areas of academic study. I see it myself, for instance, in the growing cross-polarisation between literary studies, film history and media studies. In what ways do you feel this development is presenting new opportunities for writers and do you feel it has the potential to create entirely new emergent subject areas as a result? Yes, it's, well actually it's not that new um, because when I was a student many, many years ago studying anthropology we were using some of the same theory that people in literary studies were using. So it's, for example, structuralism, symbolism, those sorts of things that we analyse in both areas and then the writers influenced each other. So Levi-Strauss, for example, was one of the people who influenced and Saussure, who was a big man in language, um, influenced both fields but um, the, what's been happening <clears throat> recently and I think it's a good thing is that there's been uh, a move towards interdisciplinarity I think is, is the, the word that academics would use for what you've called hybridisation and actually the woman I mentioned before Gillian Tett who's, who's who works for the Financial Times but has written really good books she's written a book called The Silo Effect and she's lauding the fact that people are now looking at each other's disciplines because what she calls the silo effect is where people in one discipline are writing to each other, as I explained at the beginning, you know, they're writing in languages only each other can understand, and then they don't put their discoveries across to other disciplines and, or, you know, the general public readers uh, as well. And her, um, her argument is also in favour of saying how well anthropology can contribute to all kinds of other disciplines. So I, I don't think I don't see another subject coming out of it, but having an interest in interdisciplinarity or sharing disciplines is something that students are being encouraged to do, to, to look across boundaries and try to make connections. Yes, because when you mention that, I mean, I think of people like Svetan Todorov and um, possibly people like Roland Barthes. Yeah, definitely. Roland Barthes was definitely one of the characters who influenced across um, different fields. Jean Baudrillard. That's oh yeah, who, that's who I'm looking yes, for. Yes, yes, Baudrillard. Yeah, yeah, he was he was very influential. He, he, he influenced me, and um, they both did actually, in one of the books that I wrote, one of my favourite books that I wrote about theme parks and cultural <laughs> display, because the, the the copying and the um, and the the creating of worlds that you could interpret in a in a 
in a spatial form, for mm. example. Yeah, and those discussions, I think, about simulation and simulacra have be- be- become so um, entrenched in this kind of postmodern world we live in now, um, because you see it often, um, certainly I've seen it in the last few years, um, in relation to augmented reality, virtual reality, um, how we may perceive reality. And uh, as you say, it's fascinating to see how these theories which have been laid down now for decades, are still, you know, continuing to develop and yes, be discussed. Yes, yes. You see, you did. You used the words that they put out and that became um, well known, actually, in their cases, like simulacra, and and I didn't. I said copying, and you know, I said words that people understand, even if they've never heard of them <laughs> before. So that's an example of what we were talking about at the beginning. Hmm. What advice would you offer someone who's coming anew to either academic writing or the craft of writing for a trade publishing audience? Do you feel the current market conditions are more competitive than in years past, or are the new developments in publishing helping to create a more inclusive environment for writers today? Well, I don't know. I mean, I I would like... I think it's always been difficult for writers to find the publisher that they want. It's, it, um, but they're probably I don't know look you know I'm a a writer who's trying to find a publisher for something I've written and haven't succeeded yet not you because you don't publish fiction but so it's a tough world and um, the writers who've done won Booker Prizes and who you know spent years trying to find publishers are an example I think in Scotland writers especially young writers are given more support than other parts of the world i was at a an indie book fair in oxford which is basically people who publish their own work so they're independent publishers is is what indie's for but it's it's mostly writers who decide to self-publish but there was a publisher there and she'd published the work of one of the people who's organizing the um the the gathering and she i said told her that i'd written this novel or these novels and would she be interested? And she said, yeah, I'd be interested. Let me have a look. She said, but... And when I said it was set in Scotland, part of it, she said, oh, you'll probably be better off trying to publish it in Scotland because people's publishers get support, more support there than we do. So I think in, probably in Scotland... And there are also quite a few things like retreats, aren't there, that people can go on and writing... Um, sharing their writing with other writers. I've got a friend who came from Oxford to Scotland to attend such a thing and was telling me about it. So maybe you're talking about Scotland as much as other places. I don't know what it's like in um, in other places really, but I have heard people telling those same stories and from people from very different countries telling, telling the same about how difficult it is to find a publisher. Hmm. And yet, you know, I just met by chance when I was in Oxford someone who'd had no problem whatsoever so I think it a lot depends on who you meet and who you talk to and chance I mean my first book that I ever published was um, my thesis when I my anthropological thesis and um, I got asked by a filmmaker to help them make a film in Japan about something that I'd studied for my thesis and then the filmmaker was um, a woman whose brother was a publisher and they were having Sunday lunch together and chatting about the film and he got in touch with me and said would you like to publish your book uh, your thesis as a book with us 
And so, you know, those kind of things you can't predict. Serendipity seems to play quite a... <laughs> serendipity, that's, a, that's another word that... <laughs> but luck and chance seem to play a part, don't they, in how people manage to find publishers. And I've had that happen over and again. So, so I also did some work, which you didn't mention, with First Nations and Indigenous people around the world. And I asked my existing publishers if they knew anyone who'd be interested, because I wanted to write them for a general reader rather than to be too academic. And it so happened that one of them had a friend in New York, and I wasn't anywhere near New York at the time, who was looking for something of that sort to publish. A Kurdish woman, actually. So, you know, it was just lucky. Yeah, absolutely. As you say, sometimes it just... Uh takes the most amazing strokes of luck um, to, to see a book out because my very first book, oddly enough, um, arrived with the first publisher I ever worked with uh, at exactly the same time as he was producing a large volume of his own um, on a similar topic. Um, and there was no way of knowing that when I submitted it. I think at that point, statistically, you had a 1.1 million to one chance of a book being taken from a, a slush pile uh, to be published without an agent. So, uh, as you say, sometimes it just takes... Uh, uh, you know, blind luck to, to be there at the yes. right time. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that's true. But I also think that at the moment, certainly in England, from people I've spoken to, I don't know if this is true in Scotland as well, that the publishers are getting, are getting so many books coming through that they, even the agents, they only have time to look at the first sentence of what you send, you know, to decide whether they're going to read any more. Hmm. And I've got a good friend who's who actually she's founded the publisher which is now very well known called One World mm -hmm. and One World has had Booker Prize winners and all sorts of really well known um, authors public and we published an anthropology book with them my, a, a colleague and I so and I know her and she's um, she just when I approached her she said Joy I just can't even look at it I've got s stuff coming in from agents and you know she was just inundated and that's that, I thought that might have been a good contact, but <laughs> she just told me what the world was like. <clears throat> yeah, that's that's the amazing thing about Scotland, actually, is that the literary ecosystem here never stops. It seems to constantly develop and uh, heads in interesting new new directions all the time. Um, I don't think there's. Uh, I'm sure there are other markets like it, but being here, it seems very exciting because you never really know what's going to come out in the next year, two, three years beyond uh, where you are at any given time. You're in a good place. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And you never know what the new trends are going to be. That's the, that's the beauty of it. So thank you, Joy, very much for sharing your thoughts today about different modes of writing and about you know the books and publishing uh, generally as an industry. Uh, it's been good to talk to you and to hear your thoughts. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's <laughs> a privilege to be able to talk to the last year's Independent Publisher of the Year. Well, still until September. We're keeping our fingers crossed after that. Oh, OK. Very good. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. And thank you also for listening. Uh, I hope that you'll tune in again soon. Thank you.
If you would like to find out more about advertising on the Extremist Publishing Podcast, please visit their website at www.extremistpublishing.com for details.